It was really, I feel like, uh, nostalgic seeing Francis introduce me. You know, he was the first person who ever invited me to speak for a college ministry. Back when he was in college, he invited me to a AACF medium group. And I was so excited and nervous that I was going to get to speak on a, like for a college to a group of college students. I'm like, I was always like youth groups before that. And so uh, when he invited me, I asked him like, what should I wear? <laughs> and he said, clothes. <laughs> because uh, yeah, I guess there's no dress code for medium group at UCLA. Uh, but anyways, so glad to be here with you tonight. Let me just open us in a word of prayer and we'll begin. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. It is a lamp to our feet in the midst of the, the dark clouds of sin and suffering that settle on our lives, that um, try to draw our, our hearts away from you, that we so often lose our way in. Lord, your word pierces through that and doesn't just tell us the right steps to take, but shows us who is with us. It shows us your love that is better than life, shining through everything so that we can grow, we can continue through the fog and, and know you are with us, know we can worship you. And Father, I pray that as we, um, as we come before this passage tonight and then the next section in Matthew 5, I, I pray that we would see your love, that this would not just be a study of uh, how to not lust, but more importantly, it would be a study, uh, a meditation of your great love for us and how we can be stewards of your love in the way we look at others, in the way we serve others, and we, we consider others in our hearts, that we would have relationships of honor that point to a Savior who has honored us and loved us so undeservedly. Lord, allow us to be ambassadors of that same love. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, it's, I love that you guys are going through the Sermon on the Mount. I was listening to some of your previous sermons, and it's just so encouraging. Um, tonight, Francis asked me to take kind of the next section. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. So good to sing with you guys. Also, I just want to say that it always feels like just this refreshing rain, just clarifying everything, maybe at the end of a long week, like, this is, this is what is true. This is what life is about. This is who I am. When we sing praise to God, we just understand everything that really matters. And um, I, think, I hope that as we come before his word, that we'll just continue that worship. But this, this study is a really, uh, it's really dear to me. And I want to begin by just sharing a little bit of the journey God has taken me on in learning how to fight the sin of lust. Um, it's especially dear to me because in my life, I would say especially junior high all the way through college, so basically everyone who is worshiping here uh, in the sanctuary tonight, lust for me felt like a hopeless prison. I mean, I've experienced some great tragedies, some really significant tragedies in my life, and I'll tell you about that another time. But no outside trial has caused me more discouragement and depression than the constant inward trial of losing the battle with lust. And I think it's because no outside trial, no matter how bad it is, can harm my relationship with God. Right? Only my sin can do that. Like the betrayal of a friend, the death of a family member, the abuse of an enemy, the battle with a disease. You know, all of those things are tragic. But, but no outside trial can disturb me and distress me more than my own sin. Because no outside trial has the power to touch my closeness with God, right? Only my sin can disrupt that. And this is why I love knowing how to fight sin because I don't want anything to keep me from my heavenly father. 
Right? He is the one who supports me when I face all of those challenges, right? Whenever the sickness comes, when the betrayals come, when the, the pain comes, he is with me and I know him. But in my sin, I, I don't know him. I've turned away from him. He is the one who supports me in everything I face. And the only thing in the world that can put distance between me and my God is my sin. And this is, this is also why I love do, doing what I do as a counseling pastor here at Lighthouse, right? I absolutely love just walking with people through the, these, like the valley of the shadow of death, the valley of, of sin and suffering and considering how is God with us? How is he caring for us? How can we look to him and find hope in him? See his truth lighting up those valleys. Now, I think some of you are probably familiar and excited with what I'm talking about. I see some heads nodding like, you know, exactly. Yes, life, joy, happiness is absolutely in God. But some of you might not be familiar with what I'm talking about. I mean, you, you still think the, the worst disappointments are on the outside of life and the greatest joys are on the outside, right? It's going to be landing that job. It's going to be getting that person's approval. It's going to be getting married one day. It's going to be having a certain life, that that's where the greatest joy is. But if your greatest joy is truly your relationship with God, what he has given you in Christ now, then sin is always going to be your greatest discouragement. I think for most of my life, I had a hard time seeing sin and fighting sin, helping others fight it, because my understanding of sin is, was so shallow. So I knew sin was like messing with my mind. It was messing with my relationship with God. And this is why I'm passionate about gospel-centered counseling at Lighthouse, because I want to get as close to God as possible. I want to see our church become an army of people committed to fighting anything that gets in the way of worshiping God. One summer when I was in college, I was a cabin leader at a Christian camp, and I was having like a one-on-one -on -one session with this 12-year-old uh, junior high student. And he was confessing to me his struggle with lust and pornography. Now, this young man was desperate, right? He had been living in this prison of, of lust and pornography for over a year, and I remember him just looking up at me with these hopeless tears running down his face and saying, Tim, does it ever get any better? Does it ever get any better? Now, I was a college student and I didn't, I, in my mind, I'm thinking my heart is just swimming with idols. Like my thought life is crippled by lust. I felt the last, like I was the last guy on earth that should be giving him any advice. I'm thinking, what am I doing here? I'm such a hypocrite. So I just want you to think for a second about how you would answer his question. Does it ever get any better? What would you say to him? Like, would you take him to the hope of heaven, right? Someday, man, we're, we're going to sin no more. Would you, um, would you tell him to count the cost of following Christ, cut out every source of sexual temptation? Would you talk to him about having accountability with the local church, right? Just meeting with a brother, don't do this alone. I think all those things are good, but it could just leave him wishing for death, right? So that he'd be in heaven and not struggling anymore. Or putting all his hope in people and fences that would just be kind of keeping him from the things his heart really wants. So what would you say? This 12-year-old this junior hire is going to be kind of our case study tonight. So as we're thinking through this topic and this passage, I want you to think about it for yourself. But I also want you to think about how you would care for someone else who might be struggling. I mean, I might be describing a situation you're going to face next summer if you're going to serve in a camp. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and you can look at Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30. I'll read this for us. You have, this is Jesus speaking. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. 
But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So if, if what Jesus is saying is true, then adultery comes from our hearts. Not from our situations, not circumstances, not nature, nurture. It comes from our hearts. So what tools do you have to address that 12-year-old boy's heart? That's what I want you to be thinking about. Lust is not primarily a nurture problem. It doesn't ha- happen mainly because of your environment. And it doesn't keep happening because of a, mainly because of an addictive chemical dependency in your brain. As Jesus says in verse 28, it comes from our hearts. So more than anything else, that is what we need to understand to know how to fight and help others fight lust. We must fight it at the level of the heart, at the level of worship. So in order to help us do that, we're going to see from our passage three steps to understand and fight lust. Um, The first step is recognize worship. So you can see this in your notes, but you can also look up here. Recognize worship. So looking at verse 28, right? He says, I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, the looks with intent, intent, desire, a, a worshiper looks at God and the world and other people and themselves with intentions. So whether for good or bad, every worshiper, that is every human being that exists on the planet, looks at things. And when we look around, we have intentions. We have desires. We want. And we interpret the gifts that God gives to us with those wants, with those desires. That's why Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And it reveals the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, right? We have beliefs and desires, those intentions, those desires. They, they guide how we look around. They interpret our world. So in this passage, Jesus has just finished drawing a direct line between anger and murder. And he says they're the same in God's eyes because the heart is the same. The intentions of the heart between anger and murder are the same. You heard Pastor Francis talk about that last week. The heart of anger. So whether I'm putting a knife to someone's throat or giving them a cold shoulder Underneath both of those actions is a heart that is the same before God. I'm wanting something like revenge, justice, control, and I'm not trusting God for those things. So in our verse this evening, Jesus is drawing another direct line between lust and adultery. And he's saying these are the same before God's eyes because the heart is the same. The intention is the same. The desire is the same. So that's how he's kind of starting this passage in verses 27 and 28. God cares primarily about the heart. Because our heart is the part of us that says, I want. It is our inner desire factory, right? It is the control room for our worship. Jesus defines the level, the adultery, the level of worship when he calls it lustful intent, the level of want and desire. Jesus is saying that the desires and intentions of our hearts will either connect us to God, will either connect God's good gifts to his goodness, and we're going to worship and glorify God, Or our intentions will disconnect that gift from God and use it for ourselves. That we're going to give a whole new purpose to this gift. It exists for me, for my selfish intents. So one sees the gift as something that exists only for me. And one sees the gift as a 
uh, an instrument that will deepen my worship of God. So because of that, because we understand this, we can define lust a certain way. And you can see that in your notes on the screen. We can define lust as sexual desire, allowing sexual desire rather than selfless love to control how you see someone, think about them, or relate to them. So I'm going to read that again. Lust is allowing a sexual desire rather than selfless love to control how you see someone, think about them, or relate to them. Right? Selfless love that imitates Christ would see another person as a sufferer, as a sinner, and as a saint, and, and find ways to seek that person's highest good. Lustful desire no longer sees them that way. They don't, they're not a struggling sinner or someone affected by the brokenness of this world or someone bearing the image of God. They exist mainly as an object of my sexual desire to serve me in some way. Lustful desire no longer sees them to honor them as a whole person, but takes one feature of who they are, their physical appearance, and tells a story about how they will serve you, your selfish desires. I want you to look carefully at this next slide, and or it's in your notes too, to see the difference between bringing Christ-like love to someone that honors them and contrast that with selfish lust that makes them exist in your mind to serve yourself. Like the beginning of love is honor, respect, and counting someone as more significant than yourself, right? That's what Philippians 2 teaches us, right? Don't look out for your own interests, but look out for the interests of others. Like count others as more significant than yourselves. And the greatest interest of others that you can count is their growth in the grace and the knowledge of our Father's love, right? So you want them to experience His love. That has to be where it starts. The beginning of love is honoring, respecting, counting someone as more significant. The beginning of lust is the exact opposite. It's manipulation. Counting someone as less than you, as existing for you. They exist as a vehicle for you to get what you want. So you can see here, it says, honor says you belong to me, belong to God. Honor says you belong to God more than you belong to me, where lust says you are my possession. Honor says, your genuine needs are more important than what I want. Lust says, you must serve my desires and preferences. Honor says, I want to learn from you. Lust says, uh, do whatever I want. Honor says, I want to understand you. Um, Lust says, you need to understand and serve my desires. Honor says, let's move slowly. Lust says, give me what I want now. Honor says, what do those who love us think about our relationship? And uh, lust says, I only care about giving into what I feel. I mean, there's, there is so many things I would like to talk about here when it comes to this topic. I'm just looking at this one passage. But if you want to study this more, I really highly recommend Song of Solomon because it is such a book about honoring the other person. And there is this choir of voices, the community around this, this husband and wife that are celebrating their love all, across, all throughout the book. Just so thankful celebrating. And I like that about the last one. What do those who love us think about our relationship, specifically those in the church, those who are dedicated to pursuing our highest good? What do they think about our relationship? So brainstorm for a second. How many relationships are characterized by this honor, by this selfless love? Think even of your friendships. Just are they characterized by this? Now, have you looked with lustful intent? Maybe you imagine a romantic relationship with someone that revolves around you getting what you want rather than serving someone else and helping them seek Christ, right? If so, then we have committed adultery in God's eyes, 
Right, so let's, let's think back to this camper and, and help him. All right? The first step in helping him fight lust is to help him understand that he is a worshiper and he is looking at everyone in his life through these eyes of, of worship, these eyes with intent and desires. Is it a desire to honor or is it a desire to lust? Is it a desire to seek their highest good or is it a desire to have them seek their, our high, what I perceive as my own selfish gain? That's where we start with him. <clears throat> he needs to see that he's a worshiper. That's the big picture. We look around our lives. We live as worshipers. And it's a wonderful thing, right? It's a gift that's meant to draw us closer to God, to look at everyone and everything in this world. And it's everything is meant to make us worship God, right? Psalm 19 starts off like the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Right? We look around day unto day, utter speech, night unto night, pours forth knowledge. There is no speech or language where the voice of creation is not heard. Everything is proclaiming that God is powerful, that he exists, that he is beautiful and true. And, and we, everything, even our relationships would be moving us to worship. Even looking at someone who is attractive should move us to worship. There is this wonderful book called Every Moment Holy that describes how we take everything, we can take everything around us as a moment of worship. It has all these hilarious prayers, like how to worship God when you're changing a diaper, how to worship God like while you're watching TV. It's like all these wonderful things. But then there's this one liturgy in the book for um, when you see an attractive person. It's like a liturgy for when you see an attractive person. And I put it in your notes. Um, it says, Lord, I praise you for divine beauty reflected in the form of this person. Now train my heart so that my response to their beauty would not be twisted downward into envy or desire, but would instead be directed upward in worship of you, their creator, as was your intention for all such beauty before the breaking of the world. I guess beautiful. But the problem is that we believe lies about what we're looking at. And that's the next place you would go with this, this young man. Repentance, beginning to turn away from the sin, starts with turn, understanding the lies that kind of hijack our worship, that turn our hearts away from the giver of every good gift. And Jesus addresses this with the phrase, for it is better. So our second point here is repent. Turn from the lies that hijack your worship. So in verses 29 and 30, Jesus says, for it is better, for it is better. Why would Jesus say it is better to be injured in this life than to spend an eternity in hell? And he doesn't just say it once. He says it twice for it's better to be injured in this life than to spend an eternity in hell. He says that two times and he doesn't just say it twice here. He also says this exact same phrase twice later in Matthew 18. Now, what is he trying to get across here? Many, uh, many years ago, our staff had a conversation about how much money, I'm sure you guys have had this conversation, I think our small group had this conversation this year, how much money someone would have to give you to cut off your right hand? Like, so just a quick, uh, yeah, pinky, oh yeah, we're going to do right hand tonight, all right? Who would, who would give up their right hand for $100,000? Like nobody, right? Inflation, that, there's nobody anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can't even buy a car. What about a million dollars? You give up a, your right hand for a million dollars. No, right? no one. Uh, how about a hundred million dollars? Right hand? Okay, one person. She knows the value of a dollar, folks. I think. Um, great good she can do with a hundred million dollars. How about a billion dollars? Give up your right hand for a billion. We have like three people. Wow, you guys, okay, a few more. 
wow, a billion dollars. Okay, no, that's good, I appreciate it. Maybe you're all like, yeah, my dad has a billion dollars. How would I do that? Well, I gotta know who I'm talking to here. All right, how about if, if it was the only way to go to heaven instead of hell? Would you, would, this is it, this is, this is the gospel, the only way to go to heaven. Would you give it up? Yeah, everybody wants to go to heaven. Okay, good. Right, right, who would disagree with this statement, right? Hell is better than losing a hand. No one is, no one is disagreeing with that. Why would Jesus push this point? Why would he make it so clearly? Right? He's pushing against something. He's pushing against the false idea that this life matters more than eternity. That this world has something that God doesn't. That's why it's for it is better for you to lose this in this life than to spend an eternity in hell. He's pushing against the lie, right? That's one reason we sing so often, Jesus is better, make my heart believe. When we sing that, we know we need to sing songs like that because we need to push against the lie because our hearts want to believe, no, this whole world is better. My right hand is better. Anything is better than Jesus. That's what our hearts want to do with him. He says, for it is better because he's pushing against a false notion that goes straight to the core of our worship of God. It addresses the lie of lust that says the person you're looking at has something for you that God doesn't. Right? His story is not as good of a story as you can write for yourself with this person. In fact, his story is bad. Your fantasy is good, which means he's bad and you're better. So what happens to my worship when I start believing that lie? Right? This world becomes more real than eternity My sexuality is where I find my identity. A girl or a guy, someone made by God, becomes more real and more important than God himself. So when Jesus says, it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell, he's not trying to use a scare tactic or make his followers physically harm themselves. He's just pleading with us to not put temporary pain and pleasure over eternal pain and pleasure. He's saying you can't weigh eternity with a moment in front of your phone. Jesus is being as obvious as he can because the deception of lust is so subtle. Right? We were like, yes, of course, it would be insane to think a moment in front of a phone is better than eternity. But that is the subtlety of the lie of lust. Right? We, we as so many of us have sinned so much with lust because we have kind of this hypnotic apathy We've grown so comfortable with this sin, so comfortable with this lie. We so easily believe it. When we sin like this, we exalt temporary pain and pleasure over eternal pain and pleasure. In the gospel, God has given us pleasures that are real and satisfying and never-ending in yours right now in Christ. He is giving you a vital truth that will save you from lust. So you can look at this like 12-year-old boy, this young man in the face and say, this lie that hijacks your worship, it doesn't mainly go after your behavior. It's going after your faith. And it's important for you to understand that's why it's so subtle. It doesn't just come up to you and say, do this bad thing, click on this image, keep scrolling, watch this movie, go to this website. That is not the temptation of lust. It comes to you and says, believe that this, is, this pleasure is better. Just for 10 minutes, believe that it's better. Just for an hour, believe that it's better. Just for two hours, believe that it's better. Believe joy, comfort, acceptance, freedom. Believe life is found here just for 10 minutes. The power of temptation is not in what it tells you to do, but in what it convinces you to believe about God. 
even for a few minutes. In some way, every sin comes from believing that God will not take care of you. At least for a few minutes. And so to save yourself, you put your faith in the lies that tell you that something else will provide for you. This is what Eve did, right, in the garden. Eve stopped seeing God as a good provider. And the temptation in the garden was not, Eve, bite the fruit, bite the fruit, bite the fruit. Satan manipulated her, tempted her by giving her a different view of God. God isn't enough. God isn't enough. God isn't enough. Think for a second. What do you believe that God will not give to you? That is where you will find your idols. That's where you're going to find the roots of all of your sin if you can answer that question clearly. What do you feel like when you are completely honest with yourself? What do you feel like God's not going to give you? Maybe do you cling to an idol of a relationship because it promises you acceptance, maybe an escape from the stress of, of college. Maybe it provides understanding that you've, you've never had before. And you just don't feel like God is going to give it to you, not in a tangible, meaningful way. Every idol promises that it alone can meet our deepest needs in this life. And that's what causes us to surrender our faith and our worship to them. The strength of, of the lie is that it says, this idol is a better provider than God. So if we really zero in on this lie behind lust, it's that God cannot fulfill you sexually. That, that he made you as a person with sexual desire, and we're saying, no, he can't. He can't care for you. He can't satisfy you. So I need to worship someone or something else to meet that need. But all sexual desire really is, is a longing for spiritual blessings. You want comfort, pleasure, companionship, freedom, respect, honor, protection, encouragement. Those are all, that is a cluster of spiritual realities. And they magnetize a relationship or a person until they become more meaningful and more important than God. And according to Ephesians 1.3, we already have all those things in Christ. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in Christ. When we're lusting, it feels like you're reaching for something, that this is so physical, it is tangible, it is different than God. But actually, the force behind our lust is completely spiritual. We are looking for something or someone who will rescue us. As a worshiper, the force behind everything you crave is spiritual because you are made for a relationship with God. And once you understand this, that all sin has its roots in this lie, it'll deepen the path of repentance that you're walking on. It really will. So let's deepen it right now. Let's deepen that path right now and see how repentance is in three parts. Conviction, confession, and change. So conviction is kind of a description of the sorrow we feel when we sin. So let's go back to that junior hire, the 12-year-old. I mean, he's got tears on his face. He obviously feels convicted. So you ask him, what is it about this sin that grieves you so much? What makes you feel so grieved over it. And he says, I just see how my sin just affects my time, my energy. It hurts my grades. It keeps me away from people. It's harmed my ability to love my family. I don't find joy in life. I just, I want my life back. Now I could say to him, <clears throat> I completely understand. Sin just destroys. Let's, let's get going. Let's, let's do this together. Let's fight this sin. <clears throat> But has his sorrow made him focus on God? What is he really grieving over? God 
or himself. Right? He, has, he fully understood why God allowed him to feel guilt over his sin. And guilt is a merciful gift from God. Right? Ephesians 4 says that the Spirit groans within us when we sin. Right? So it is, guilt is this, this gift from God through the Spirit to tell me that there's something off in my relationship with God. There's something wrong there. To tell me to, I need to go back to God. I need to talk to him about it. What's going on in my heart, in my life? The fact is we often minimize or forget that our sin is against God. Because I think we live in all the dramatic effects of sin. We live inside the pain and the consequences. We feel regret. We feel like we've let ourselves down. We've let other people down. We maybe feel like filled with this powerful resolve to work really hard and to prove ourselves. We promise to ourselves we're not going to do it again. But scripture calls all of that worldly sorrow in 2 Corinthians 7.10. And it won't lead to real repentance because it's not focused on God at all. You might think, I'm, I'm, it's all about me changing. What do you mean, Pastor Tim? It's, I'm, I want to do better. I don't want to sin anymore. It's without God, without a focus of God, without a pursuit of God, it is worldly sorrow. One of the confusing things about, con- uh, about conviction is you experience it right after you sin or maybe a little bit after you sin. And you think, okay, the spiritual warfare is done. I lost. I sinned. And now I'm living in the effects of that. The spiritual warfare is not over. There is, it continues on in this moment with this feeling of guilt. Right? It's not just your sin and the temptation you felt that was a context of spiritual warfare. The way you emotionally process your sin is a huge context of spiritual warfare. The sadness you feel after you sin is a context of spiritual warfare. We must recognize that both Satan and the Holy Spirit can point to the same wrong, but the way they would talk to you about your sin is going to be completely different. Right? Satan is an accuser. The Holy Spirit is a comforter. Satan wants to condemn. The Holy Spirit is the lifter of your head, lifting your eyes to see Christ on the cross, to see his mercy that is unrestrained toward you. Satan points out a wrong and stands over you as an accuser condemning you. And so easily your heart joins in with mental punishments. Like, how could I have done this again? I can't believe it. I'm just giving up. Maybe I'm not even a Christian. The Holy Spirit points out the wrong and comforts you. He's the lifter of your head, reminding you of the love that is so steadfast and strong that will carry you until the end of this life. To help you remember Christ and remember why he is better. Does your reflection on sin move you towards a works righteousness to prove yourself, a despair to give up? Or does your, does your reflection on sin move you to worship God for his mercy and grace that never fails? All right, I'm going to give you a side note here because when we reflect on sin, a lot of times, if you've got accountability partners, I hope you guys all do, we reflect on it together. So I want to just give a note for how you talk about your sin, how you process lust in an accountability setting. Just this is a little side note here. How do you talk with your brothers or your sisters about their sin after they have sinned? Are you offering advice and strategies? Right, that could help, but it could also tempt them toward a works righteousness, right? Implying that the only way forward is by doing better next time. Or when you talk about their sin, do you, are you trying to really make sure that they know how bad it is? Because they seem to keep falling into this sin. So you just maybe read a lot of scriptures about how bad this sin is. Right? Well, we should understand sin biblically, but that could just add more condemnation if you're not showing them Christ. When you talk about someone's sin, 
I want you just to ask yourself, how can you sound more like the Holy Spirit than Satan? How can you be a comforter? How can you be the lifter of their head, pointing them to the cross, reminding of your mutual need of grace and mercy, that, you, that they are not alone, that Christ is with them and you are too, and humbly draw near to God and enjoy his boundless love together with the hope of forgiveness, the hope of that love carrying you. According to 2 Corinthians 7.10, godly sorrow over sin leads you back to God through repentance. Worldly sorrow leads to death because it keeps your mind filled with shame and condemnation. All right, the second thing here is confession. Confession. Can I humbly say to God what he says about my sin? So confession. If you ever played sports, how many of you guys played sports? Okay, a few people. So, okay. I feel like everybody played sports, right? What did your coach say when you lost a big game, if you ever lost a big game? Did he ever say something like, you know, let's just not talk about it. You know, we're, we're going to just pretend like we won. In my book, I say we won, right? No, I hope not. You, you reflect on it. You confront it. Hopefully you're not blaming a bunch of people, but you actually want to learn as a team how to do better, how to grow, how to learn from mistakes, you find hope. You get encouraged. You move forward as a team. Confession, I feel like, can be that locker room conversation with God. After losing a big game, it takes reflection and honesty and scripture and focusing on Christ in the midst of disappointment. But when it's done right, it not only brings you back to God, but as you're listening to him talk to you about your sin, you won't be filled with condemnation. You're going to be filled with hope and joy and strategy. To know, okay, here are some of the warning signs I can spot earlier. Here are some of the yellow flags that show that my heart's already beginning to turn away from him. And it's going to take you farther in knowing how to battle this sin, how to put on the armor of God, how to understand the deceitfulness of your heart, how to meditate on the beauty of Christ. Confession comes from the Greek word um, homologeo, which means to say the same thing. So in confession, we're trying to say the same thing God says about our sin. But I got to say, a lot of times we don't do that, right? We're just like, I'm sorry, please forgive me. God has a lot more to say about that than, than that. And not in a condemning way, in a, in a way that wants to point you to Christ and to lift your heads to see him. I can, in God, I can, in confession, I can talk to God about my heart, my idolatry, the things I'm hoping in instead of him. I can talk about my sin in a way that doesn't minimize it or run past it. So I can say so much more than just, please forgive me, God. I have no idea where that lustful thought came from. I can actually talk to God about the things that took his place. And what's crazy is I'm the, he's the one who I sinned against the most, and he's the one most active in caring for me. Right? His son is the one who died, who is the number one victim of my sin, and he is the one most active in helping me with it. Why would I turn away from confession, from an opportunity to talk to my God in the context of his love about my struggle? When we do that, we're getting closer to the meaning of confession, saying what God says about our sin. When God talks about our sin, he talks about a lot more than just our sin. He talks about himself and his love for us. So the point of confession is not to have you staring at your sin for a long time so you feel really bad. It's to have you staring at God for a long time. And in the light of his glorious grace, not only will your sin be more exposed and more clear, but it'll also expose yourself. You'll be more exposed to God, to see his love. So you can remember once again why he is better. All right. So we understand conviction, centering it on God, 
confession. What would God say about this? And the final step of repentance is change. Change. Now, this can be like a discouraging word, especially if you feel like you're on this endless merry-go-round of sin right now. Change can feel like a pretty empty word. There's another word that's been really popular when we talk about lust. I don't know if you guys grew up with it, but I did. And it was the word purity. I don't know if anybody grew up with that. It was everywhere where I grew up. And I went to purity conferences. People at my Christian college had purity clubs where they wore purity rings to uh, represent their purity promises. Right? Purity, when I was growing up, was almost entirely about avoiding bad things. It was this avoidance ethic. Right? That was purity. You just don't do certain things. You just hold your breath and don't sin. But biblical purity is not just that. It is not an avoidance ethic where you just stay away from certain people, certain technologies, certain media. Purity is about being a vessel set apart to love like Christ. So to do that, we need to create a diet of fueling our faith and meditating on Christ's love not just so that we're set apart, but so that we are moving toward everyone and everything with his love. So what does it mean to create a diet of fueling your faith with meditating on God's love? Well, purity is found when our hearts are so full of God's love that when we look at someone, our only desire for them is that they would know God's love. I, I'm so full. I, I'm so thankful. I'm, my heart is overflowing from the time I had with God this morning from being, seeing the sunrise or the sunset, I want other people to know his love. Right, just think about that. Do you have relationships where that is the main goal? Like when you, when you prepare, like you're in your car and you're driving to see that friend or that family member and your greatest hope is like, I just want them to experience the love of Christ through me. Do you have relationships with that's your anticipation? That's how you, those are the pure relationships. If that isn't there, then it's likely that we're not regularly experiencing and expressing God's love with each other. This is why, this is honestly, guys, why you need a daily experience of God's love. Like you need it every day. This is your manna. His love is your manna. So your love for your brothers and sisters is just an overflow of that experience with God, that the love that you tasted and, and saw in God was, was real and refreshing and encouraging and it was life for you. And so now you have a lens to love others, right? Psalm 34, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good is a command. Are you tasting and in seeing and enjoying his love? This is why God forbids adultery and lust, right? In this passage, God does not forbid lust because he wants you to be miserable. He forbids it because you will never be able to deliver the riches of his love with lust. He knows your joy with people will only come as you are being an ambassador of his love. That's when your relationships are going to go deep and be rich and joyful. Lust might promise greater closeness and joy, but it will always deliver distance and emptiness and harm into your life and friendships. It takes away the very thing it promises to give. This purity, though, on the other hand, leads to fullness, joy, peace, no more shame, no more guilt, because that relationship is defined by Christ and his love. God doesn't forbid lust because he wants us missing out. He forbids it because this is his universe. He designed relationships and he is offering us a richer reality of love that he doesn't want us to miss out on. All right, hopefully you see how this works, how this transforms Right? Our view of people. Our, our view of people will never be pure until our view of God is pure. 
until our view of God's love for us is, is pure. Jesus understands that until our vision of God's love is full, that our vision of people will always be filled with sinful intentions. So Christ is helping us understand the heart of lust here by revealing the worship that drives desires behind every look, by revealing the lie that assaults our faith before we ever turn uh, from God to, idols, uh, to idolize another person. And the third idea Christ gives us to help us understand lust is the question of loss. What is God calling you to give up? Hey, Jesus is saying, cut off a hand, gouge out an eye. So what is God calling you to give up? In counseling, we call this, in our biblical counseling ministry, we call this radical amputation. Right? Cutting off a right hand or gouging out an eye, those are metaphors. They're not real. Don't anyone do that. Okay? They are metaphors to explain giving up great treasures in order to enjoy a greater treasure, the greatest treasure, right? But many times we can start to put our hope in how we restructure our lives from sin, right? Our hope becomes the cutting things off. That's not the point. Something people get confused about this passage is that he just talked about the heart, right? And saying the heart, worship in the heart, that's what drives lust. That's what we're talking about so far. And then he moves into this intense conversation about external solutions, right? Start chopping things off. Like, okay, if it was about the heart and the worship in the heart, understanding all these lies, now why are we talking about cutting off parts of my body? Didn't he just say that it's the heart that causes us to sin? So when we talk about radical amputation or radical simplification, it's important to note that those sacrifices you make, those limits you put on your life and relationships They are not going to be what allow you or enable you to love another person. Only a transformation of your heart will change your ability to love someone. doesn't matter what you cut off, what you change about your circumstances or your situation, that won't change your love. They'll simplify your life so you can more freely worship Christ and love others. But I don't want you to put your hope in those things. So to help us understand what radical amputation is and isn't, I wanted to share with you one of my favorite children's stories, Frog and Toad. I don't know if you guys know Frog and Toad. I love it. My kids love it. Uh, This is one of my favorite children's stories from Frog and Toad. So in one story about Frog and Toad, Toad makes this amazing batch of cookies. And he's overwhelmed with how good they are. Right? They just, that he hops straight over to Frog's place just to share in their deliciousness. And they start just devouring these incredibly tasty cookies, right? And they quickly realize they can't, they can't stop eating them. So just as they decide, okay, this is the last cookie. We're not going to eat any more. This is the last one. They, they realize, okay, we have to eat even more. So despite their resolve, they can't quit eating. It doesn't matter how many times they resolve, they can't stop eating. So they decide to put them in a box, right? But that doesn't work because they can quickly see that they can get to the box. So they say, okay, let's, let's put them in a box and put string around it. But they realize they can, you know, take the string off and still open the box. So they put them in a box, put string around it, and put it above the the kitchen cabinets, like on the very top of the the cabinets, out of sight, out of mind. But then a little time passes, and they remember how delicious those cookies are, that they're wonderful. And these amphibious friends immediately just like, let's just get it down and then eat it more. So in an act of like desperation, what they realize they have to do is just completely get rid of it. And they throw the cookies to the birds. And they feel pretty good about themselves. They say, like, we did it. We finally, we conquered the cookies and the, the need for them. And then Toad goes home and bakes a cake. <laughs> so that's the end of the story, right? 
The moral of the story is a critically important truth that fighting temptation, no matter what outward measures you put in place, regardless of how radical they are, no matter what you are cutting off, they can never change your heart. So as we talk about the fences that we put up in this life, as you maybe talk in your small groups later about what maybe changes you need to make to grow in your ability to love, to limit your opportunity to lust, we need to realize that those fences don't make our hearts pure. They simplify our lives. They kind of create the space. They create a runway for us to run toward Christ and to move toward one another with his love. But they in no way propel us down that runway. They might help remove some temptations from that runway so that we can run freely, but they do not create the love of Christ in us. They don't form Christ in us. Jesus uses serious metaphors here because there should be a painful cost and a sacrifice to what you remove from your life. Sometimes this involves uh, getting rid of certain relationships in your life, making big changes, adding filters to your internet. There can be a lot of things. What and who you're willing to part with also reveals how much you truly love Christ and how much you truly hate your sin. And remember, we are not doing this to fight for purity. Okay, we are doing these things to fight through the mountains of idols that crowd out God out of our lives, out of our hearts, because we want him. We want to be close to him again. That's our motivation. We want to be near his love so that we have his love to give to others. Right? It's, it's the same thing. Like if I'm, you know, my wife is a little upset with me and I can see her washing the dishes and like her, you know, back is to me at the sink. Like the reason I want to ask for forgiveness, the reason I don't want any disruption and I want to talk to her is not because I, I really want her to start cooking dinner for me again or um, anything like that. Like it's because I want her back. Like I want, to, I want to pursue her. I want to get rid of anything that gets in the way of me pursuing her. I want to ask for her forgiveness because I love her. I want her, right? So this is not mainly about you having moral victories more often, in your fight against us, this is about you having the freedom to run more fully and freely toward Christ, who is your joy. This is why we're so serious about killing all sin and removing all stumbling blocks that stand in our way of enjoying him. We just want him. And the loss you are willing to endure for the sake of knowing and enjoying Christ. Not only do you owe this to him, but it, those losses are going to make you more like him as you make sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, right? His life consisted of one sacrifice after another to make it possible for you to know him, right? He set aside his crown. He took up his cross to come to you. What sacrifices are you making in your pursuit of him? Are they costly? What treasures are you laying aside to enjoy him? It takes time to reflect, to think about this. I pray you would do this tonight. You know, I, I, I think sometimes you might look like a fool because of some of the limits you put on your life. Maybe you can't, you know, use your phone the way other people can, right? I, I think of Joseph when Potiphar's wife tried to take advantage of him in Genesis, right? He looked like a total fool when he fled, right? He, she was holding onto his cloak and he ran out stark naked in front of all of his employees and he lost his job. He was put in prison again. He looked like a fool and he suffered because of that sacrifice. But it was, he said, how can I sin, do this evil and sin against God? He didn't want anything messing with his relationship with God. He didn't want anything to disrupt enjoying the manna of God's love in his life 
so that he would be able to love others. And that was the most loving thing he could do to Potiphar's wife when she pursued him that way. We can pray and beg and cry and wail over our sin. We can confess our sin with accuracy, biblically, and so much sincerity. But at the end of the day, we need the space to pursue our Lord. And that that takes time to reflect. We need to be practical. So I'd like you to make a list maybe tonight. What are the practical ways you can simplify your life, draw near to God in a regular way, and grow to express His love toward others? So what would you say to that camper who asks you through tears, does it ever get any better? Hopefully you can say yes, but you weren't made to fight this alone and I wasn't either. None of us are. Can I walk with you to help you understand the battle going on in your heart? Maybe you're here tonight, brother or sister, and you would say, Pastor Tim, I know I'm a slave of sin and I'm not a child of God. I am owned by my sin. It isn't an occasional struggle. It, It is what defines my life. You can be forgiven and adopted this evening, this moment through faith in Christ and his death on the cross for your sin. Maybe you're a child of God and you are battling sin. I just want to encourage you, remember the battle is good and you are not on your own. Keep fighting. I don't know exactly what your circle of of care and circle of Christian friends looks like right now, but in our church, we want to be a community that fights together. Right? People might think you're weird because you don't have a browser on your phone or your computer uh, is in a public place or something like that. They might think you're weird because there are moments in your free time you take to be serious about confessing your lust, fighting lust, praying for the holiness of your brothers and sisters, checking in, texting one another, asking for someone to check your heart. But we have to take lust and the damage it does to the body of Christ and to our relationships seriously. We have to stop minimizing it. I mean, Christ was serious when he died on the cross for our sin. Like the poor lost souls who are in hell in this moment are serious about the consequences of sin. God was serious when he sent his spirit, when his, as the spirit of God is serious as he continually intercedes for our sin. The spirit is so serious about removing lust from our lives. So it's not weird to take time every day to cry out in faith to God for help, to, for forgiveness, to reach out, to text a friend, to ask for help, to lean on one another, to grow in your ability to love others. God has given us light to see, down, see lust, to expose our sin down to its roots, to see the things that replace him in our hearts. So you know how to joyfully return to him again and again and bring his love that is always there for you into your relationships. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your love. It is constant. It is so faithful. It is so strong. Your love is better than life. And our lips praise you. Lord, we cry out to you and you deliver us from our troubles. We pray to you. You deliver us from our fears. We ask for your help. We ask for grace. And you rescue us from moments of temptation. And you have placed us within a body of Christ your body, your church, to help us run with freedom, with hope, with joy, with perseverance, knowing that you have already accomplished the victory of our sin, that your spirit continually is there reminding us of the hope of forgiveness and mercy that is, that is always there. 
And Lord, you have given us brothers and sisters who love us, who care for us, who echo your voice, who remind us of your love, and who tangibly express your love to us day after day. I thank you for this family. I thank you for this church. I thank you for Beacon. I pray you bless the conversations that are had now. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.